From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 173 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I am doing fantastic. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm all snuggled in my Pendleton and all that as we are in fall weather. Most definitely. <laughs> I'm glad someone is. <laughs> yeah, so it is chilly and uh, leaves are turning and I don't think we're going to have 80 degree weather. Is it snowing not far from here? Ooh. So um anyway, so yeah, so it's not we're full-blown um, Christmas, just none of the weather that goes with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, in this episode, we are continuing our look at the past, present, and future through the Horizons Pavilion, arguably the most beloved of past Epcot Center pavilions. In episode 167, we examined the history of this pavilion, and now we are going to enter the pavilion and ride the attraction, review its two closures, and examine its legacy. And Craig, if I recall, you've you've also been on this uh, pavilion. You've been on this ride. I have, yeah. I yeah. did it multiple times. So obviously, I was very young while I was while I was experiencing it. It was uh, mostly when I was ten and under. But I I have a, a very strong affinity for it. And luckily, there are so many good videos out there on YouTube that mm-hmm. help bring it back to life in in just a perfect way that it, it's every time i watch those videos it helps re-spark those memories that i do have in me so uh it's horizons is usually pretty fresh in my mind yeah yeah i went on it numerous times and loved it it was a must-do pavilion for me whenever i went to epcot center yeah it's um you know i i feel like I feel like if you didn't do it, then but you know about it, then you probably have have a massive affinity for it. But of the of you know of those early Epcot attractions, as much as I loved Horizons, I still think that World of Motion and Journey into Imagination were a little bit more of my favorites, but. Horizons mm-hmm. was just it's so unique and it did have amazing music and a lot of a lot of awesome visuals throughout it so it's still spectacular but it wasn't it, it wasn't in my opinion it wasn't necessarily as worthy as like the the cult level that some p- people hold it up to today but it's it, it's a ride that I do miss dearly yes yeah yeah i i, I totally understand why people hold this in such high esteem um, yeah, it's that and World of Motion mm-hmm. are probably the two that I miss the most out of the pavilions and the and the original 
like you said, journey into imagination. Mm -hmm. And even living with the seas, the original one of that Mm -hmm. I um, miss too. Well, approaching the pavilion, we see what to some looks like a huge spaceship that has just landed or a jewel. And if you, if you listen to our last episode, you'll know that they, they tried to be vague with the architecture design of that, um, pavilion. So nearing the entrance, we can hear instrumental versions of New Horizons and even a little, we bring good things to life. Hearing the friendly tune of George Wilkins' New Horizon as we stroll through the automatic sliding doors sets the tone and theme of the pavilion. We hear children singing, if we can dream it, then we can do it. Uh, and, and it just, and, you know, it springs from the children's voices in the background. And those lyrics also appear on the wall, although it doesn't, it doesn't have then in it. It's if, if we can dream it, we can do it in large type in the walkway. Mm-hmm. And this line is still used today, although it's often misquoted to Walt Disney. Um, Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald penned the words, and they're still relevant today. Um, although on Twitter not long ago, a listener wrote that they have it on good authority that that line was actually written by someone else. Oh, really? And yeah, and they, um, and, and they, they had some links to some information and things like that. I think it was on our connecting with Walt Twitter page that our Twitter account that they had put that in a while back. It was in response to one of our Q and A shows where we talked about, uh, I don't know, the urban legends or something. And I, this is one that I brought up was that if you can dream it, then you can do it um, yeah. being, you know, uh, you know, being a Walt Disney quote when it really isn't. So anyway, interesting. so, but, but imagine your Tom Fitzgerald is credited with writing that line. Um, the way the children sing, yes, we can connects to the positive message of the song and of the pavilion. And it, perfectly summarizes the vision of the optimistic future that Walt Disney fervently believed in and was essential in the original Epcot Center, that we need our combined creativity to build a better future. Turning right, we see a large lit sign that shows all the flights scheduled for departure from the future port. Our flight, Flight 83 Horizons, is flashing since it is now boarding. The flight number is a reference to the year that Horizons opened, 1983. And the sign resembles an airport screen with listings of upcoming departures, yet also feels a little futuristic. By not moving too far away from the familiar, Horizons still exists within our understanding of the modern world. To the right of the signs are closed doors marked Concourse B's, but those aren't real doors, so they don't open. And we proceed through the open doorway marked Concourse A to the left of the sign and then down the ramp. An instrumental version of New Horizons fills the room. And after we stroll down the ramp and around the corner, our next step is quite a convincing effect. The gorgeous images of futuristic settings are set up in a circular view that seems three-dimensional. We view these paintings through windows that only offer part of the picture. It feels 
like a lot more is just beyond our view. Accompanied by narration, these images offer a preview of what is coming in the Tomorrow's Windows section. Three travel posters, each one surrounded by mirrors, show scenes of a floating habitat, a futuristic desert city, and a space colony. A kaleidoscope effect is created by the way the mirrors surround each painting and the way each painting moves back and forth or up and down. Also, a globe-like circular effect is created when looking in the mirrors. The first one is of a floating city in the ocean called Sea Castle, the newest and most exciting floating city in the Pacific Ocean. The next poster shows the expansive desert city Mesa Verde, the most advanced desert reclamation complex in the Western Hemisphere. And the final poster shows a shuttle docking at a space colony, Brava Centauri, newest of the exciting Centauri cities of space stations, which offers remarkably rewarding opportunities and Earth support vocations. So I think it was a, the cue is a very effective reveal, I thought, to what we should expect in this attraction. Yeah, yeah. It's um, unfortunately that is one of the parts that I don't necessarily remember about when when I did uh, travel there when I was younger. But but the video I've seen of it, it absolutely it, it painted the picture for what was to come ahead really well. And this was such a large space. It was very expansive that as time, it, it would sometimes give you the impression that this wasn't a popular attraction because the queue could handle large crowds. So it wasn't um, crowded. Yeah. And I mean, went through it. there is a little bit of truth of it towards the end of Horizons that it wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. a, a popular attraction, but you know, it's, it definitely was a, a big queue. And a lot of times big queues do make attractions seem less popular and uh, not in the age now of social distancing in queues, but, but back <laughs> then, yeah. 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 Now, next we approach the moving platform that will take us to our ride vehicle and cast members point out which vehicle is for us and remind us to watch our step as we board the unique suspended four passenger vehicle. Horizons aligned its Omnimovers along the wall, so we faced outwards towards each scene. This allowed the Imagineers to place a lot more into tight spaces of the building using an inventive ride path. We also feel closer to the action since it passes right in front of us. The opening scene uses a simple effect of cloud-like images with colors springing out behind them. This transition makes us feel like we are traveling into another time and place. Instead of just dropping us into the action, Horizons takes its time and allows us to acclimate to the setting. Entering the Looking Back at Tomorrow segment of the attraction, we see pictures of man's earlier attempts at flight and space travel, which appear and disappear with waves of colored light. All of them don't appear to be very safe. The first one has a person suspended from a flock of birds flying through the air, and that changes to a man suspended from an umbrella with a balloon on top. And the set in the upper right corner has a sign that says, First Moon Flight. A crowd of onlookers watches as the cannon is ignited and a spaceship blasts towards the moon in the background. 
And this concept is, of course, from Jules Verne's um, From the Earth to the Moon. Mm-hmm. And that picture changes to a closer look at the spaceship careening towards the moon. And the final set of pictures shows a person flying with bird-like wings attached. And that changes to an aerodynamic ship with several umbrellas serving as the roof. So we're slowly reaching for the stars. This is all very clever. Yeah, and it's I, I like it too because it does tell that that transition, but at the same point it is also a cool transition in that, you know, with the at the beginning with the clouds, it starts up extremely flat except for those pops of colors and you know, a little bit of depth with how the clouds are are kind of spaced out and such and then going into the the flat 2D drawing and then eventually that does take us into the world of of three dimensions. So mm-hmm. it it kind of transitions the story and takes it on a on a journey in in two different ways. And mm-hmm. I think that's very clever. It is. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. And and then so we then get into the three-dimensional because we next see a spaceship as envisioned by Jules Verne's. And in it there's Verne a barking dog and a clucking chicken floating weightless inside. And the plain metallic exterior is in sharp contrast to the very elegant interior with light fixtures and velvet cushions. Yeah, if only we would have been able to go to the moon the Victorian way. With, I know. It's all comfy and, and cozy and... and uh, Tea. <laughs> <laughs> Next is the moon with a projected image of the man in the moon on its surface. And Vern's spaceship is sticking out of the smiling face's right eye. And the left eye looks around and then at the ship. Blacklit stars fill the background behind the moon. And some of the stars also have smiling faces on them. The next scene is based on the work of the 19th century French futurist Albert Robita, and it portrays his vision of Paris in 1950 with subways, flying fish which move up and down, dirigible taxis, an express trip to Madrid, and high-rise buildings that have a small 1800s country village look. The sets are all flat, two-dimensional, with black and white, and with a little red, white, and blue lighting representing the French flag colors. And the, and so there's a, there's sort of a lot going on. Yeah, in and, these next scenes. Yeah, and I I do love that transition then back into a different a different uh, style as well too. So you're you're talking about you're getting on this attraction and you're already seeing all of these different different ways to tell the story right at the beginning there and in a very quick succession. It's a very very cool how they do that and uh of course i love i love the fact that they included the uh the a trip to the moon uh the mm-hmm. the sy- symbolism of the the moon with the the actual uh, rocket propelled bullet whatever you want to call it in the eye that's that was a nice touch and and you know there was so much going on in these opening scenes that you you could ride horizons a number of times and and see something new mm-hmm. because you couldn't see it all the first time this leads into arguably horizons most iconic scenes in the pavilion with the robot butler and other machines helping to provide easy living 
a variation of the Sherman Brothers classic, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, plays in the background. And Horizons was a spiritual sequel to The Carousel of Progress, so including that song was the perfect reference. And this is a typical 1920s or 30s sci-fi home of the future, complete with robots that clean and cook. One man holds a cigarette whilst looking at the vast city lights outside. Another is reclining whilst a robot is giving him a haircut, a manicure, tan, and a shoe shine all at once. The tanomatic allows him to choose which level of tan he wants. Hawaiian, Caribbean, Miami Beach, or Palm Springs. The atmospheric storage company's product allows him to have either tropical breezes or an alpine chill blowing on him. On the second level, a woman is taking a bubble bath. Whilst a man on the television is singing, there's a great big beautiful tomorrow. In the kitchen, a robot's head is spinning uncontrollably at the mess its five arms have to clean up. Whilst two hands are washing dishes, another hand is sweeping the floor, another is cooking on the stove, and yet another is spilling milk on the floor, much to the delight of the cat, who's licking it all up. Now it's time for the matinee, and this scene features three screens that shows clips from old films and a Walt Disney cartoon. The first screen plays Metropolis um, by Fritz Lang in 1926, Charlie Chaplin's 1936 film Modern Times, and Woman in the Moon by Fritz Lang in 1928. The second screen plays Just Imagine by David Butler in 1930, Things to Come by William C. Menzies, 1936, and then Buck Rogers um, by Ford Beebe and Saul um, Goodkind from 1940. And behind the first two screens, a blacklit movie theater signs dot the landscape. No signs say Nickelodeon, the t- time machine, things to come, Metropolis, Bijou, Strand, Le Voyage dans la Lune, Admit One, Now Playing, and Looking Back at Tomorrow. The third screen is shaped like a TV set with blacklit TV antennas and the Mars and Beyond sign behind it. The natural progression of these screens moves us slowly towards the more bustling scene that followed. Turning the corner, we encounter a neon-like, black-lit, futuristic 50s scene with cars and buildings similar to the Jetsons. Loud 50s music accompanied by beeping cars and helicopters is heard. This scene shows the future as those in the 1950s envisioned it. Rockets on the left are available for rent. The Skyline Express, a suspended monorail, shuttles people between New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. The Astro Burger restaurant has a sign out front that says, Fly in UFOs welcome. And a person with his or her dog, both wearing rocket packs, flies in from above. Cosmic College and Galaxy High School are in the middle background and signs to Orbit Town and Starfield Stadium are on the right. Galaxy Towers, the star's homes, is located above the 200-mile-per-hour speed limit highway, but unfortunately, the highway is closed out to launch, which explains all of the beeping. The futuristic cars are forced to turn around and head back. Way up in the left-hand corner 
is a familiar sight to Disneyland guests between 1957 and 1967, a building reminiscent of the Monsanto House of the Future. Yeah, I really, I, I love those three scenes back to back. Of course, the robot butler is, it, it's pretty much up there with iconic Disney imagery, even if you haven't been on horizons but if you're a big disney aficionado then chances are if you say the robot butler you know exactly exactly what we're talking about with Mm -hmm. with uh with horizons here and yeah then and then blending into all of that the movie sequence with the neon and then ending up in that 50s mid-century uh idealistic approach to the future it's just all so cool right back to back to back it just it works perfectly like so much of this attraction did mm-hmm. i agree and it makes me think this is how if they want to redo like tomorrowland at disneyland they should take a look at this scene again yeah because i think it would be fun i completely agree with you like there this. yeah it's sometimes you have to go back in the past to get to the future mm-hmm. and it would work for disneyland I don't think it would work for the Magic Kingdom because Disneyland was built in this era, the mid-century modern. So I, I think they could definitely get away with redoing Tomorrowland in this motif. Yeah, I so. honestly, I feel like I, I feel like Walt Disney World might have messed up with starting to get back to its minimalistic approach with with Tomorrowland. I feel like they should have just doubled down more with the neon and that mm-hmm. approach, but. You know, it's well. All Tomorrowlands will get figured out sometime in the future, probably tomorrow, but not today. <laughs> yes. Now, the next section is one of the ride's most important moments, and first, there's another cool transition: um, a wall with red and pink lights at the top blink on and off. The original effect here utilized 40 miles of fiber optics and 22,000 points of light for both this wall and the one after the omnisphere. The shifting colors of light serve as an effective way to convey that we are moving on or traveling through time from the futuristic 50s to the present, the 80s, (laughs) when this was built. The transition scenes help build a warm atmosphere more than anything else. The music shifts towards a sense of wonder, And the narrators restate the attraction's mission statement once again. Tomorrow's horizons are here today and we'll see them soon. The dim lighting combines with the music to create a relaxing feeling. And it also helps build a surprise when we reach the gigantic Omnimax screens. We don't expect them and we're stunned with the massive image in front of us. The vehicle turns the corner into the Omnisphere Theater, and here on a pair of hemispherical screens, 80 feet in diameter, we see what is possible for our future and what is being worked on now. The powerful music and huge screen makes this ride sequence one of a kind. No other theme park attraction utilizes an Omniscreen, really two screens, Mm -hmm. for just one small sequence of an attraction. You know, some will, they've used this for the full attraction, but not just one little sequence. So, so, uh, the narration in here, um, 
the husband, because, you know, we're, it's the mother and the father. The husband says the DNA chain, life's molecular blueprint, decoding its secrets, is leading us to dramatically improved health. And then we see a computer image of a DNA chain. It appears and zooms in, spinning around for a dizzying closer look. Then we see smaller pieces that spiral around and form a sphere, and the sphere turns into a sun. And then the husband continues, the sun. Today we're learning ways to harness its limitless energy. And then we see a space shuttle taking off, throwing dust into the air, filling the screen. Then a computerized image shows the shuttle docking at a space colony. Then he continues, colonies in space, habitats where people live and work. This is no distant dream. We're at the threshold now. And then he continues, a computerized view of Earth, Landstat photography, providing vital data on agriculture, resources, and ecological concerns. And then we see the computerized view of Earth changing to the New York City skyline. And then the narrator continues, the cityscape, a living tribute to our richest resource people. Then the city changes into a close-up of a computer chip. And then the narrator continues, here's a new kind of cityscape, the microprocessor, an entire computer on a tiny silicon chip. And then crystals begin to grow off one another, filling the screen. Then the husband continues to say, crystals inspired by nature, now engineered by man for an ever-growing role in microelectronics. And then the screen fills with water as we see fish and divers below the ocean surface. Then the narrator continues, the world of liquid space, oceans of minerals and food ready to fuel tomorrow's needs. The cycle repeats itself, returning to the DNA chain and a similar wall like the one before the omnisphere with blue and pink lights at the top is now in front of us as we make the transition from the omnisphere present to the 21st century. And often it takes a few rides through to see all of the omnicycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And despite just being a big screen, this sequence still ranks amongst the most impressive scenes that Disney has ever created for its theme parks. I wish I actually remembered this part of the attraction better because, you know, as a kid, I remember all of the show scenes so perfectly with this. This, like, when I was watching it for the first time, I, on a YouTube video, I was like, I don't even have any memory of, of video portions of this attraction. And, like, and so then looking at the blueprints of the ride, it's like, I, how do I not remember this part of it? This it, that was so so important to this attraction, but it it is impressive even still seeing the videos of it. You can you mm-hmm. can really get a sense of the scope of it all. Yeah, and we talked in our previous episode about the technology they had to create mm-hmm. just to, to make these films happen because they didn't it didn't exist. That's so, just um, breathtaking. It is. It is. Now, another effective transition prepares us for the attraction's second half. It's known most commonly as Tomorrow's Windows. And this animatronic field section includes some of Horizon's most memorable scenes and is quite different from what preceded it. And I think these are the scenes that people remember the most. Yep. Um, it would be. 
<laughs> yeah, it would be jarring to progress immediately from the Omnimax screen to the next show scenes. So the music shifts to a more playful tune as we observe the mother and the father in their futuristic home. So we are now in the futuristic city of Nova City, and through the windows in the back of the apartment, we can see odd-shaped buildings and maglev trains, and it's getting dark outside, and according to the clock, it's 6.28 p.m., and dialogue is now shifted to the characters on stage. And here we get our first glance at the husband and wife we have been listening to throughout the attraction. The husband is playing an Aeolian harp, like most of the on-stage talking characters throughout the ride, he says basically the same thing twice, with slight variations between the two. And his wife is talking to their daughter on a holographic phone, although it's not a hologram or scene. The connections to the Carousel of Progress are clear in this scene, and there's even a dog sitting next to the father to parallel the structure of the scenes in the Carousel of, carousel of Progress. By now, the balcony where futuristic hybrid plants are being grown aeroponically and hydroponically has passed, and we turn to a desert scene. A smellitzer machine fills the air with the scent of fresh oranges. Mm. So this is way before Soren. Yeah, the the original orange smell. Yes. Mm -hmm. This small touch heightened the scene beyond just seeing the family working in the desert. This scene also uses a the clever effect of having characters speak through video screens and that we observe one side of the conversation, then we move on and then we see the other person later on. We are looking at rows of crops and the voice controlled robots that harvest the crops in the desert farm of Mesa Verde. This scene portrays that it is now possible to turn a desert into a thriving farm A bird sitting on the rocks overlooks the farm in a desert beyond. Machines called helium lifters drop hooks down to to collect baskets of the harvest from the robots and then fly the produce off to be sold. Hover lifts with spinning blades function as automatic shade controls. And a satellite dish called AgroWaveLink sends out the commands to the machinery. A woman in the control station for booth, the narrator's daughter, whom we just saw on video phone talking with her mother, is controlling the machinery by simply saying aloud what she wants. Her husband, who appears on a monitor in the booth, warns of severe weather that is on the way. Three other monitors display radars and the control systems. On the counter of the control booth is a glass of orange juice and some of the hybrid fruits being grown at the farm. Passing by a rocky waterfall, a cat tries to catch a jumping fish in the stream with its paw, and we now see their daughter's home. And her husband, who's the narrator's son-in-law, is standing behind the counter in the kitchen, which has a glass floor, allowing for a view of the rocky stream flowing below. That'll be a bear to keep that floor clean. The husband is baking a cake for Davy, our narrator's other grandson, who lives on the space colony. We're going to see him later. The cake is elaborate with a miniature model of the space colony on top. By the refrigerator, the narrator's Mesa Verde grandson, Michael, uses voice activation technology to say the type of food his father is asking for. 
When he announces what he wants, the part of the refrigerator that is holding that item slides open. Two birthday packages are wrapped and sitting on the counter, and one is wrapped in Mickey Mouse wrapping paper. The adjoining room is the communications room, which features a large video phone and a computer. At the moment, the computer has been set up to teach a chemistry lesson. However, the narrator's granddaughter, who should be using it, is talking to her boyfriend on the video phone instead. He is working behind his solo sub, but then leans out to the side so we can see him. And the Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald actually played the boyfriend on the video screen. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And he voiced him as well. So. Our next stop is the Floating City to meet the class and the pet seal, preparing for their diving lesson. Leaving the desert behind and moving into Sea Castle, a floating city, we see that the granddaughter and her boyfriend are still talking. Now she is on the video screen, and he is working on his yellow underwater Solo Sub 1 vehicle. And it's suspended from the ceiling, and he is sitting on the ledge right next to it, with his tools all spread out behind him. Looking out the window, we can see we're not underwater yet. We're on the coast, right above the water, and can see back towards an adjacent floating city. Now, she gets up and leaves for a second, then comes back, and the conversation repeats. Moving lower into the sea colony, we approach a class that is getting ready for a class trip to a nearby mining and kelp farm. The day's class schedule is on the wall behind them. 9.30 is senior life-saving, 10 o'clock discovery dive, 11.30 swing tim practice, 1300 solo sub-race, 1400 junior life-saving, and 1600 marine biology seminar. They have a busy day. (laughs) Still moving lower into the depths of the ocean, we are now looking at the outside of the floating city. Through three large half-spherical windows in the side of the floating city, we can see people enjoying an underwater restaurant. An African man and a woman chat in the first window. An Asian girl is pressed up against the second window looking out at a seal who is looking back, whilst her mother stands behind her. In the third window, a man is reading over a clear plastic menu. Also through that last window, we can see up to the ledge where Tom, the boyfriend, is sitting and working on the solo sub. All that is seen is his foot rocking back and forth. Below the floating city, a turtle swims by solo sub 7, which is similar to the one Tom was working on. We leave the floating city and see the rocky ocean bottom. After passing an octopus resting on a rock and a large fish whose mouth opens and closes, the class is seen on a film rear projected on a screen, swimming by on their way to see the kelp farm. And the sequence repeats and we move on to see the machines harvesting the ocean floor. So there was a lot going on in this whole uh, ocean sequence here that we just went by yeah the the entire ocean sequence is really complex and honestly they they do a great job of using interesting lighting effects and and again a depth in how everything is spaced out to actually really give that idea that you could possibly be looking at this under the sea and Mm -hmm. it's it's very, very, uh, it's very, very cool the way that they actually did all of that. And it, it always made me want 
to kind of push the the C button at the end, but not yeah. it didn't sell <laughs> me there completely. So I did them all during my time, but they um and also when you listen to our pre- if you haven't listened to our previous episode on Horizons, you know this is one uh, you know they had to they had a budget cut, so they had to shorten the attraction. Mm-hmm. This is one of the scenes where they had to get creative with the ride path so that they this is on different levels so that's why you can see um some of the animatronics from different sides yeah. and all that some of the different scenes because they had to shorten them it's it, and I, they still it still worked that's exactly what i was going to say it still works out and it works out really well it it just <laughs> feels like it it belongs that way sometimes cutting the budget i think uh inspires people to get more creative and it, and it works out even better than maybe what the original plan was. Yeah. I mean, it's not always. Yeah. (laughs) In an ideal world. Yeah. You want, you want to be able to have an unlimited budget so you can do everything. But sometimes true creativity comes from when you have restrictions that you have to work in. And, you know, when you have to figure out how to put the, the circle into the square and make it fit completely right. Just like in, in Apollo 13. I can't remember mm-hmm. if it was a square in the circle or circle in the square. Either way, they got home. They made it. Yes, back. they did. So. They were able to make that filter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, a very smooth transition is made from the ocean to space. From the darkness of the depths of the ocean, our vehicles begin to rise into the darkness of space and stars fill the sky We see a new space colony under construction and further on a completed one rotating to create artificial gravity in the distance. The physical sets in front of our vehicles combine with the screen to deliver an effective view of space. Astronauts hang from the sets and help to make the forced perspective come together. An astronaut floating upside down is working on some equipment. Another worker, the astronaut's captain, is inside a small mobile compartment. She can also work on the equipment using robot arms built into the compartment. And Bellis's majestic musical piece, Space, plays in the background. Moving inside Brava Centauri, we see a one-person shuttle marked Century 3 Intercolony. This represents the original name of the pavilion, and it's in the um, Bay 37 airlock tube. As we move through this section, a series of dispatches are made, including... uh, Oh, I don't worry about that one. Dispatches are made that... um, say where all the different shuttles are going to and who's arriving, things like that. So you feel like you're really in a bustling, um, you know, space station. Next, we pass a large window that lets us look out at the vast expanse of lights on the rotating space station. The painting from Shim Yokoyama reveals an intricate look at this outer space world in the background. And Look carefully, and you can see a few hidden Mickeys along with Disneyland Space Mountain, Main Street, and Town Square. We are now in the Recreation Center, and watching a video of an Earth Road, a woman wearing an Omega shirt, is riding an upside-down stationary bike. A rowing machine complete with a video monitor is set up in a similar way. It gives the user the option of which river to travel down by showing the different rivers and saying, select locale, Louisiana Bayou, 
Colorado River, or Venice Canals. We can also see shadows from a zero-gravity basketball game being played in the back room. On the right is a health scan machine that monitors the body's systems during exercise. So, I think I love the different rivers where it's you have the calm bayou, then you have the rough Colorado River, and then just the Venice canals. Yeah. <laughs> just lean back and have someone take you through there. Yeah. All, all three are very relaxing in their own mm-hmm. rights. <laughs> yeah. A family has just exited a space shuttle, arriving at Bravo Centauri. This section's memorable scene depicts the family interacting in vid- zero gravity. In the portal at the back of the scene is a diagram of the shuttle that they just came off. I think it's like the Santa Maria or something mm-hmm. is the name of it. One of their son Tommy's magnetic shoes has fallen off. Tommy, his dog Napoleon, his teddy bear, and his shoe are all floating around the room. He's still holding on to Napoleon by the leash. His father is walking along the ceiling trying to get the shoe. Both the mother and father are wearing their mag shoes, so they aren't floating. So seeing how humans live and interact in these environments of the future is essential to Horizons. Yeah, and I love I love the scene with the entire family. It's just, mm-hmm. it truly is, it, it is the most iconic uh, part of the entire attraction. I mean, right up there with the, the robot butler, those, those two are the ones that like, I, I can vividly remember every single detail of it in my mind. And then, you know, I love, I love that it just, it, so much of this section just channels 2001 because as we talk about a lot on, on this show, somehow it always gets brought up, but you and I are both massive fans of that mm-hmm. movie. And it just, it, it, it all fits so well together. It does. It does. Yeah. I think, and I think the other iconic scene is the class before their diving lesson with the seal that keeps Very interrupting true. the teacher because yeah. the children, the children keep laughing. I think the seal's name is Rover. <laughs> that's a, that's clever. Yeah. <laughs> the cycle repeats as we move next door where a woman is growing a large crystal for use on earth. She is using diffractor controller A. Diffractor controller B is below, and growth support system is on the other side of the room. The last room shows their son, the one who wouldn't live anywhere else and his wife along with Davy, our narrator's grandson, at Davy's birthday party. There are three video screens allowing members of the family to be at the party. The first one has our narrators. The second one has their granddaughter from the desert farm, the one who shouldn't be flirting with the beach boy, as uh, as the father said to his wife in the narration. And the third one has Tom, the beach boy, from the floating city. And and they, I think Imagineers always referred to him as Tom too, because Tom Fitzgerald portrayed him. So makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It looks as though he didn't make it to be with his girlfriend in the desert. So he's calling from a separate video phone, phone with his tools still in his hands. Uh, the granddaughter is holding up the birthday cake her father and brother made earlier, and they all sing happy birthday to Davy. And I did read somewhere in um, my research for this that happy birthday is copyrighted, and Disney had to pay like I think three thousand dollars or something to the company that holds the rights it w- to the song. I don't even think it was a company. It was the individual. It was the lady who wrote "Happy Birthday" 
owned the rights for the longest time. It it is now Happy Birthday is now in the uh, in public domain, so now anyone can sing Happy Birthday. But yeah, for a long time, if you wanted to use Happy Birthday, you did have to actually license it out. Yeah, yeah. So Disney did. So after enjoying the birthday party with the entire family, it's time for us to return home. This transportation involves one of Horizon's most famous elements. Riders get the chance to pick their flight path back to the future port, either through space, desert, or undersea. In front of us are signs that say, Explore the New World, Omega Centauri, now open. And that's space. Come with us. Come have sun with us. Mesa Verde, that's the desert. And ride our subway, Sea Castle Resort. And that's, of course, undersea. Each one shows a scene from that area and has a shuttle that appears to move from one side to the other as we pass it. Other signs that say launch sequence initiated, systems check complete, airlock open, and launch flash on and off. In front of each seat, three buttons illuminate, one for Omega Centauri, Sea Castle Resort, and Mesa Verde. The ride's finale will take guests into the distant future of each one of the three biomes explored today through a 31-second simulator video, a different film for each Omnimover based on the selections of riders. Uh, the videos were a simulated flyover of the futuristic terrain, all achieved through cameras flying over scaled models. Um, those models produced in 1983 by 30 model makers are built and filmed in a hangar at the Burbank Airport and also in Stage 3 at uh, the Walt Disney Studio with the desert model alone measuring 32 feet wide by 75 feet long. So where did Omega Centauri come from since we just visited Brava Centauri? So remember, this refers back to the three paintings on the entrance ramp before the ride. Well, at the at the one that shows the space colony, the announcer says, Brava Centauri, the newest of the exciting Centauri series of space stations, indicating there are several Centauri stations, including one called Brava, the one we visit on the attraction, and another called Omega, which is the one we see in the end of the attraction. So drivers separate ride vehicles, so we don't see what the people next door chose. On screen, our shuttle takes off um, or dives on its way to the future port. Depending on which flight plan we chose, we hear a different departure announcement. Whilst exiting the pavilion, brightly colored lighted panels cover the walls and ceiling. An instrumental version of New Horizons is heard. Turning the corner, we see the GE logo on the wall. There was one more surprise on the way out. The Striking Mural, The Prologue and Promise by Bruce McCall. The gorgeous image of people standing in front of a blue future summarizes horizons perfectly. According to the artist Bob McCall, the mural depicts a flow of civilized man from the past into the present and towards the future. It depicts most of Earth's nationalities, cultures, and religions. The monuments depicted from left to right are the pyramids of Egypt, the obelisk of Egypt, Stonehenge, pyramids from the Central American and Mexico region, the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens, the Koba al-Sakra, 
or the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, a Thailand temple, a Chinese temple, an African tribe, tribe hut, St. Peter's Church, a, or Basilica, a Taj Mahal, a Tori, a, a Bali Buddhist temple, the Daibutsu Buddha um, from Japan, Big Ben and the House of Parliament, the Eiffel Tower, St. Basil's in Moscow, and the Red Tower of the Kremlin in the background, the Washington Monument, the U.S. Capitol Building, and then the City of Tomorrow. Throngs of people from around the world are heading towards that dominating futuristic city that imparts the attraction's ideas of an optimistic future. The mural also includes famous monuments from our past and present, and it is a stunning creation. Um, Sadly, GE removed the mural and added a GE logo to heighten their presence in the attraction. Didn't you say last episode that there's still a version of the mural somewhere, though? It still does exist. I'll get to that in just a moment. So, at least according to something I read, it still exists. Okay. So. Passing through turnstile-like dividers that count each guest, we then exit through the automatic doors back out into Future World. So, few changes are made to the pavilion over the years. The fiber optic star field was deactivated. Narrations were altered. Originally, the harvester robots talked back. Uh, Mission Control originally began and ended the ride. Jiro, the GE robot, was introduced as a walk-around character. And in February 1986, the prologue and the promise mural was removed from the exit hall, and it now resides, from what I've figured out, in Disney offices that are largely inaccessible to the public and most cast members. So guests were rooted through the VIP entrance until March 22nd, when the new exit tunnel reopened. If that still exists... You think they could bring it back for this, um, you know, the reimagining of Epcot. That'd be cool. And find a place somewhere for it. I'm sure they could. Yeah. In 1993, GE decided not to renew their 10-year sponsorship of Horizons, just as they had decided to drop their sponsorship of the Carousel of Progress. And that was the beginning of the end for Horizons. All GE references were removed. The Walt Disney Company continued to operate the pavilion seasonally until it closed towards the end of 1994, a year after GE's sponsorship expired. In an era before social media, no one seemed entirely sure what would become of Horizons. Over the next six years, the ride would open and close numerous times, whilst Imagineering tossed around several ideas, ranging from a refurbishment of the existing attraction to a complete overhaul of the pavilion's concept. All the while, Horizons was allowed to fall into a state of disrepair due to the lack of sponsorship money. The pavilion sat silently for one full year, until it surprisingly reopened in December 1995. And why? Well, Epcot was already short on actual rides and had seen its capacity reduced even further by the closure of other pavilions. World of Motion had been shuttered to begin construction on Test Track, whilst the universe of energy was being retrofitted with Ellen DeGeneres, Bill Nye, and... 
sadly, the late Alex Trebek, to become Ellen's energy adventure. That left only Wonders of Life open on that side of the park, so Horizons was reopened to manage park capacity. Given that the original version of Test Track missed its opening by several years due to technical delays, Horizons lasted three more years as a placeholder. And once Test Track finally opened in 1999, Horizons was closed permanently on January 9th, 1999. A popular urban legend alleged that a large marshland sinkhole near the structure had weakened it to the point of near collapse, necessitating major infrastructural work on Disney's part. Now, Imagineer Marty Scalar did verify the existence of a large sinkhole in that corner of the park, but never indicated that it was particularly to blame for Horizon's demise. Some Imagineers hinted that a sinkhole was much closer to World Showcase's long-closed Odyssey restaurant. What is more likely is that GE's sponsorship and financial investment gone, Disney would have to pay out of its own pocket to modernize Horizons, something that the company was willing to undertake after the financial disappointments of Euro Disneyland and Disney's California Adventure. And around this time, the company was also considering Tokyo's Disney Sea and a $700 million park, Disney's America in Virginia. A major rehabilitation of the attraction was considered. Improvements would have included new Omnimax films, new sets for futuristic scenes, updated projection technologies, new animatronics, updated wardrobes, and a new musical score. However, with no sponsor, Michael Eisner decided it was too expensive. The structure stood for 16 months after its final closure. On September 23, 1999, both the large and small horizon signs were removed. In April 2000, Disney and Compaq announced that Horizons would be demolished and in its place, Mission Space would be built and scheduled to open in 2003. In the meantime, destruction of the Horizons building could be seen throughout the summer of 2000. A black wall was put up in front of the pavilion and read, Watch this space, in all caps, for a future announcement. Trees were added behind the wall to cover some of the destruction of the building. By October 2000, the land was all cleared and the foundation work for Mission Space had been started. When built, would it achieve the popularity of Horizons? We'll explore that in our next installment of our Epcot series when we cover Mission Space. Horizons will always be remembered as an Epcot classic, and as a much-loved attraction, it could have become a permanent staple, if only it had been updated and refreshed, just like Spaceship Earth has over the years. One of the biggest reasons Horizons still resonates with so many Epcot Center guests is the ride's optimistic vision of the future. The future depicted in Horizons and the overall message of the original Epcot Center is one of limitless possibilities. This was Walt Disney's vision of the future and what he had conceived for his Epcot. Tearing down horizons may have taken out what little of Walt's spirit was in this version of Epcot. With the destruction and now the new direction for Epcot, I believe that Walt's sense of optimism and adventure that was present in Future World has been lost 
perhaps forever, in this park. So, Craig, what are your thoughts on the on the legacy of Horizons? I think that Horizons is such a, a fascinating attraction to be at Epcot, just because, uh, kind of as I've already alluded to earlier into it, in this episode, that I, I have a, more of a fondness for World of Motion and Journey into Imagination uh, more than I do of of horizons and I'll, I'll even throw in spaceship earth. Uh, cause you know, when I was, I was going as a kid, you know, I mostly grew up with the, uh, Jeremy Irons version. And that was, uh, that was the one that left the biggest impact on me. So horizons was also a favorite, but just, it, there was a lot, there was a lot more there for me that I felt like was a little bit more kid friendly so to say not that not that horizons was in any way shape or form not kid friendly but i think it, it has been fascinating as the internet has grown over the years and and fandom has even grown over the years i, I think it's so interesting to see how this adoration of horizons has just continued to thrive and i i think like a high point for it was um i want to say it was somewhere in early 2019 uh, i don't i don't know if you ever got to watch it but uh a, a guy named matthew serrano who also directed the uh the halix documentary on defunct land he put together a video of about um about theme park fans hoot and chief who like they ran, I think it was Mesa Verde Times, uh, a blog about Horizons. But oh yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's about how they literally would go towards the end of Horizons when it wasn't that popular. They would literally just ride it over and over again, and they knew all the places they could jump out of a ride vehicle and go, and they would just sit in the show scenes for the longest time. They would walk up to the animatronics, and so they have this video and photos of of the ride up close and personal like no one else has because of all these these rules that they were breaking jumping out and that like that reignited a, a new uh, obsession with horizons for a lot of people uh last year when when this story started to even grow more so it feels like there's always something something new developing with horizons there's always a new story to be told with this attraction that hasn't been around now for how many years <laughs> I think it's it's been gone longer than it existed. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hate when I hate when you have those moments where you find that out that it's now been longer than something's been gone than it ever was around in the first place. It was mm-hmm. like how I was always sick that you know it's it, it got to the point where so many of us hated the hat in front of Great Movie Ride, the Sorcerer Mickey's hat, but it got to the point where the hat was around longer in the park than it, the park was there without the hat. And that's why so many people loved it. Uh, that's, uh, th- those moments just make me shiver, but I guess that's what happens when you get old. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tell me about it. So, well, we hope you enjoyed this ride through horizons. And, um, and like I said, next time we will talk a little more, um, about Mission Space that replaced this um, wonderful pavilion. But now it's time for us to choose how we return back to this week in Disney history. Will it be through space, through desert, or undersea? 
Okay. Well, Craig, we are at the week of November 15th. Okay. This is a tough week to find things that open <laughs> or find things that happened and all that. So um, I guess maybe because of Thanksgiving, there was things quieted down in Disney history. Makes so, sense. But anyway, but okay, for November 15th, Red Cat. And this is uppercase R-E-D, uppercase C-A-T, one word. The alternative theater behind the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles, California, has its official opening on November 15th, 2003. What is Red Cat an acronym for? Red Cat... I am not sure. This is a tricky one, and I never would have figured this out. <laughs> Red Cat is an acronym for benefactors Roy and Edna Disney. That's the red. Then Cal Arts. That's the CA and the word theater. Yeah, I would have never figured that out. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So it's interesting. I probably will also forget that one pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, November 16th. On November 16th, 2004, Stitch's Great Escape is officially open at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom with a short ceremony held in front of Cinderella's Castle, which is covered with Stitch toilet paper. A theater and around experience based on the 2002 animated feature Lilo and Stitch. How many attractions have occupied this site in Tomorrowland? Okay, so we started with Flight to the Moon there, and then Mission to Mars, Alien Encounter, and Stitch, so four. That's correct. That's right. Stitch's Great Escape is the fourth attraction to occupy this site in Tomorrowland. And much of the technology and sets from its predecessor, the extraterrestrial Alien Encounter, is used. So... And, and I, it's still sitting there empty, right? There's no word on what that's going to become. Uh, it's from what I understand, a lot of it's been gutted, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if a lot of the seats and stuff were gutted, or if it was just uh, the stitch animatronic and anything they could actually pull from that. And I, I don't think we're going to see anything in that theater for a very, very long time. Not until yeah, Disney not. turns around. Yeah. Yep. Okay, November 17th. What band officially played its last gig on November 17th, 1971? This band has recorded albums and performed at nightclubs, private parties on television, and at Disneyland. I'm just going to take a wild guess based on the time frame here and say uh, Firehouse 5 plus 2. That that's correct. Firehouse 5 plus 2, a Dixieland jazz band made up of Disney Studio employees. Officially plays its last gig at a car show in Anaheim Convention Center, California. First formed back in the late 1940s, the group was led by Ward Kimball. So, they had a good run. That's it. They did. They did. How interesting was that a car show? Yeah. But they did a lot of outside gigs. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, and not every gig is going to be of the same scale as the next, but the fact was they were, they were working. That's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Okay, November 18th. Thanks to Disney archivist Dave Smith, November 18th, 1978 is a big day for Mickey Mouse. What did Dave Smith do? 
Huh. I I'm not positive. This is the first year Mickey has an official birthday. Disney archivist Dave Smith has declared that November 18, 1928 was the first general public appearance of Mickey Mouse, which created an official birth date for our favorite little character. I mean, good for him. 50 years seems like a little bit of an insult, though. So I (laughs) I hope Mickey was slightly mad about it. (laughs) Anyway, well, I don't know. Think of all the gifts he probably got. And he's he's given a lot of gifts since then as well too. Besides the ones that he's been given, so uh, yeah, it's it's just it's a perfect blend of harmony that continues mm-hmm. to this day. Ninety ninety two years this year. Yeah, I know. Gosh, he looks good. He does. Must be that oil of Olay he uses. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, November 19th. Walt Disney's Silly Symphony cartoon, Babes in the Woods, was released on November 19th, 1932. What fairy tale is it loosely based on? Uh, Hansel and Gretel. That's correct. That's right. And the nursery rhyme, Babes in the Woods. Um, Directed by Bert Gillette, two lost children chance upon a village of elves, but meet an evil spooky witch. And Babes in the Woods is the third Silly Symphony produced in color. Of course, that's, I, I included that since that's one of the ones for story time with Michael yeah. that we'll be talking about at some point, hopefully. Synergy. Okay, November 20th. On November 20th, 1989, Disney adds a $10 bill to their Disney Dollars series. Which Disney character was featured on that bill? On the $10 bill? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> Minnie Mouse. Hmm. She got her own own Disney dollar. Good for her. I the last time I was at Epcot, I don't know if I told you there. Um, I was buying a pin that you know, you know, that little pin store that was beneath Spaceship Earth, and there were Disney dollars in the um, in the in the cash register. Somebody had paid with Disney dollars, and they haven't been made in a while. So I gave her, you know, cash, and I, I bought the Disney dollars. That's smart from I- her. I know I still have a, a one dollar and a five dollar. I think somewhere around my house. Probably I probably shoved it inside a book. It's a bookmark, but I don't, I don't think I ever had above a five dollar bill in Disney dollars. Just because you know, why why would my parents all the way back then? Why would they give me more than than five dollars at a time? I couldn't be trusted. <laughs> I'd drop it. Carol and I used to collect this full set every year to keep, and then we would save up Disney dollars, and you know. Before they had Disney gift cards. Yeah. That's what we'd give our children. Say, okay, this is your money for the day. And so spend it wisely. (laughs) It's amazing how much whining ends when it's their money they have to spend on treats and snacks and all that. We'd pay for lunch and dinner and, you know, food and all that. But but they were constantly asking for snacks. We knew they weren't hungry. And trinkets. We said, this is, this is. You're spending money. Yep. <laughs> okay, November 21st, an ad for war bonds featuring art from a Walt Disney film appears in an NFL program on November 21st, 1943, for a game between the Pittsburgh Steagles. This is the first time I have heard of the Steagles. And the Detroit Lions. Do you know about the Steagles? I do not. 
The Pittsburgh Steelers, I had to look this up. The Pittsburgh Steelers have temporarily merged for one season with the Philadelphia Eagles as team rosters have become depleted by the ongoing world war. They did not have enough players or coaches for two teams, so they merged for one season. That, that makes sense. The Steagles, yeah. Yeah, I got that. Yeah. So I think you can still buy, I think people still make shirts because I happen to come across online this stuff that says like, Philadelphia dash Pittsburgh Steagles. Oh wow! I'll have to look that yeah. up more. Yeah. So anyway, but which Walt Disney film is did the art come from? I I have no idea. <laughs> the art is from the Ave Maria sequence from Walt Disney's Fantasia. Okay. Good time period. Yeah. So, and that's it for this week in Disney history. It was a it was a rough one. It was. <laughs> so anyway, well, Craig, I've decided to, um, you know, I was planning on going. I've talked many times. I was going out to Walt Disney World in November, but I decided to reschedule my trip for, to Walt Disney World for later on. But I did make reservations for the um, 50th anniversary in 2021. I already have those. Excellent. I just hope that... Uh, I hope that Disney is able to match the anticipation that all us Disney fans have for the 50th anniversary. I'm sure they'll do something. I mean, they have to do something. So, Confetti's yeah. cheap. <laughs> as long as they don't make the castle a birthday cake or string toilet paper around it, you know, I'll be happy. I, so, I'd be okay but, with the toilet paper. That's just me, though. Oh. So I well I don't know if the pandemic's still going on. People might rip it off the castle. Well, that's uh, that, and that's <laughs> <Hoard> like, it. <laughs> that's why it would be so fun to have the toilet paper. It'd be like, hey, you remember a year ago when there was that time period for a couple months when toilet paper was the most in demand item in the entire United States? Yeah, yeah good really. times. <laughs> but on the so anyway, I'm going to have a little staycation at home instead and get some things done around the house and hopefully relax a bit. But then it got announced, I think, yesterday, before we recorded the show, uh, D23 is doing a virtual event all this coming week, Fantastic World Celebration. And, um, I, I mean, it's just a whole, they're going to have a week of virtual events, articles, merchandise releases, celebrating all the worlds of Disney for D23 members. And it's for all levels of membership. But then there's two events that are gold member exclusive you have to sign up for. But it's all free. Mm-hmm. So um, it's pretty cool. So on Monday... The 16th of November, they're going to talk about Fantasia, a conversation with Eric Goldberg. Maybe he'll talk about the Pittsburgh Steagles. <laughs> and then there's Star Wars Galaxy's Edge storytelling through merchandise. Okay. Um, so I assume that's a merchandise release. Tuesday, eleven seventeen. Okay, I've seen this come up in some YouTube videos. Marvel 616 Uncovered. But I'm not entirely sure what 616 is. It's uh, Marvel 616. It is an upcoming documentary series 
about Marvel that will be coming to Disney Plus. And oh, okay. a lot of uh, big celebrities have been involved in this project. So it is definitely one of the uh, it's one of the next showcase pieces to happen on Disney Plus. Oh, good. Okay. And what's the significance of six one six? That I am not positive about. So okay. it's it definitely a, a level of Marvel that is slightly more nerdy than i get into i am uh, of course i love all of the the marvel films i and i shouldn't even say that i love most of the marvel films and uh, i i am not big on the comic books though and i i never have been uh, a massive comic book reader on it so i'm looking forward to learning more about marvel through this series well speaking of comic books marvel comics celebrates 80 years of captain america it's also happening that day. Yeah. So um, Captain America is my favorite Avenger, so I'm looking forward to that. Wednesday is the first of the Gold Member exclusives, Globe Trotting with Mickey Mouse and the Walt Disney Archives. So that should be interesting. Followed by Celebrate Mickey and Minnie on their birthday. And that, that one, that second one's for everybody who's a member. Thursday the 19th, Walt Disney World, Destination Tomorrow. And then Epcot, The Magic of Possibilities. That should be interesting. Yeah, the Epcot and, one, there is a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of chatter about it because in the, uh, the release about, uh, this, this event that's happening all week, they definitely said that they are going to be talking about the making of Remy's Ratatouille adventure, uh, mm-hmm. during the Epcot panel. And so some people are having their fingers crossed that maybe there'll be the surprise announcement of at least the, the opening, uh, a closer look at the opening time period, even if it's the right month, let alone if it's a, if it's an actual opening date, that would be very exciting. That is exciting, yeah. But it probably that won't would happen. be cool. It won't happen, but we would all. <laughs> It'll happen love a week later. Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then on finally on the twentieth, D twenty three presents five facts, a Toy Story. I think it's celebrating its twenty fifth anniversary or something. Mm-hmm. And then finally, they end up with another gold member exclusive, creating fantastic worlds: a journey into Disney World building. Now, if you are not a D23 member, don't fret, because we are going to report on this on the show So in December. So stay tuned for that. We'll tell you everything that went on. Yeah. And, you know, like we said, most of the events during this uh, this special week, they're open to everyone anyways, just those two panels. And it, there is a, a great offer that is also happening with with D23 that week where you can get the special Fantastic Worlds pin set for free if you sign up as a D23 gold member, a new time one. You can't be a can't be a renewal and it can't be an upgrading from gold member to gold family member. It has to be a brand new membership, but if you sign up for it, you'll get the the pin set that's worth uh $40 and I think there's a Mary Poppins pin in there and uh and uh um, a Zootopia pin in there. I can't remember all four off the top of my head. And I I think there's one from oh there's one from um Okuzo or whatever it is. Kuzco. What's that movie? Uh, from Kuzco. Emperor's New Groove. Yeah, I think there's one in that. From that, I don't. I, I watched the video, but I don't remember what they all are. But I thought, hey, do the existing gold members get that too? It, it would it would have been a nice bonus, but I, I get it too. They're trying to they're trying to get people to sign up for the the gold membership right now, and it's not a 
it's not a bad way to to get people to finally give in when they know they're going to get their regular gold member gift, the Fantastic World's gold gold member gift on top of also then a pin set too. It's it's good if you didn't already sign up for it. And I mean, going along with that too, D twenty three did say that uh, the next issue, the winter issue, will have Soul on the cover. So we'll we'll mm-hmm. get that. We'll get more information about Remy's Ratatouille adventure, uh, new photos from uh, Hong Kong Disneyland's new castle that they're putting together, info on the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, uh, just so much more. Um, I I think there's an article, too, about the Death on the Nile movie, which I am very excited about. So it's it's been... I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's been an exciting time for for D23 here, and it's... (laughs) I'm I'm looking forward to everything to come yeah. with it. And this does not uh even though this was happening during the week of Destination D that, that got cancelled, this does not replace it. Mm-hmm. They still plan on having Destination D in twenty twenty one. So but, so I don't know what that is. <laughs> but that that was a question that got asked and they said, No, we are still having a rescheduled Destination D. And we will so. be there hopefully. Yes, yes. Yeah, I have lots of DVC points I have to use up. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, just a reminder of a couple other events. Of course, I give kids the world night of a million lights still going on November 13th. Um, through January 3rd, 2021. I am disappointed. I won't see that after yeah. all. Hopefully, though, you'll be doing videos of that, Craig. I, so I can I watch w- it virtually. Will not. I, I might do a little thing if when i do go i will be going i don't know when i'm going yet but i know uh the night that we are recording this episode a lot of the team is at the media preview and you know they gave us i think a couple extra spots too since we had it one or two of the villas decorated mm-hmm. uh on our behalf too so uh, i know that uh, a lot of our team is out there and has been posting photos of it that you can find on our on our Diz uh, social media pages, and I'm not sure if they're going to throw together a video too of the the finished project. But uh, I, I expect tickets to start selling pretty quickly now that a lot of people are getting to see the end product of it, and they're they're seeing how incredible it looks. They're gonna they're gonna start flocking to it. Yeah, I've seen a few photos, and they look beautiful i think i saw kathy whirling post some right before we started recording yeah it's, it looked great i think disney donated three million lights to to make it all happen it which, probably they probably took out the osborne lights it's still they're still in storage over at disney hollywood studios i i learned and um they probably just pulled those out and said here we're not using them <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. And then Give Kids the World Family Reunion 2021. It's actually the Diz Family Reunion, but it's being put on. It's hosted by Give Kids the World, and it's a benefit for them. March 25th to the 27th, um, 2021, Contemporary Resort. And I think I heard on the the uh, Walt Disney World show today, some things have been added to that. Uh, yeah, I was half listening. I, I will just, just be honest. I, think, that. I know Jody I, I think Jody... Jody Benson, a concert by Jody Benson has been added to it. And oh gosh, someone else that Oh, Yeehaw Bob. That's right. Yeah. I'm finally gonna see Yeehaw Bob. <laughs> so um it's been added. So that's very exciting. And there were only a hundred or so tickets left. Yep, that's that's so. the big thing. Uh it's once those tickets are sold out, there will be no more spaces. So mm-hmm. 
you're on the fence, start really thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, but that, that I'm excited. I'm really excited about that. And um, just a reminder about actually, I, we haven't been getting into too much detail about it lately. But um, so I, I've had a couple of listeners send me messages saying, "What's this about?" Story time with Michael, um, the rebirth. Um, the first version of Story Time with Michael has been retired, and we went into that on a previous show. But what we're doing now is for 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 Storytime with Michael 2.0, we are going to read the original fairy tales that are not, um, that are in public domain. And if you go to Project Gutenberg, uh, go to and look at the Andrew, um, oh gosh, the book's gone completely out of my mind. Um, what's the name of that book, Craig? The Blue Fairy Tale Book. Andrew Lang. Andrew That's Lang's right. Blue Fairy Tale Book. And we are choosing, we're asking, people who are artists or who enjoy art, whatever, um, to illustrate the stories for us so that as I tell the stories, um, we can have some, you know, artwork depicting some of the scenes come up. And we will promote you as an artist. And also, if you have a site like an Etsy site or something where you sell artwork, we'll promote that in the video as well. And... um we even have a, a music composer who is shown interest in doing background composing background music mm-hmm. for them. So some of the some of the sh- um, stories have already been um, claimed, but we still have um, the Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Hansel and Gretel, and Snow White and Rose Red are still up for grabs. So if you're interested in illustrating any of those, send an email to both me and Craig and we'll give our emails towards the end of the show. And we can tell, we can talk to you about it. We're very open about style and scenes that you would be interested in illustrating and all that. But you can download those stories or read them from Project Gutenberg. And Craig has a link in our show notes to it, mm-hmm. to the Andrew, Andrew Lang um, Blue Fairy Tale book. And you can see those. And then what I'll do is I'll tell the story. Your artwork will, of course, illustrate the stories. And then I'll talk a little about how Walt Disney um, sort of transformed these stories into the Disney versions that we love today. So anyway, so that that is Storytime with Michael 2.0. If you would like to catch up or re-listen to what we've covered so far in our series on Epcot Center, um, start with episode four of Connecting with Walt titled The Master Plan. And Craig and I talked about Walt Disney's original plan for Epcot and what a visit to Epcot the city as Walt envisioned it might have been like. If you haven't listened to episode four, I highly recommend you listen to it to learn about Walt's original plans for Epcot. In episode 75, A Dream Imagine, we talked about how the concept of Epcot changed from a city of the future to the theme park Epcot Center. In episodes 86, 97, and 98, we talked about the history of Spaceship Earth, the icon of Epcot Center. In episodes 131 and 132, we began our exploration of Future World with a look at the Universe of Energy Pavilion. In episodes 149 and 150, we discussed the Wonders, Wonders of Life Pavilion. And in episodes 167 and 173, we looked at the Horizons Pavilion. And as I said, in our next installment of this series, we'll take a look at what replaced Horizons, Mission Space. 
I um, I referred to several books, articles, and a video during my research for this episode. Um, for the books, it was the Epcot Explorers Encyclopedia, A Guide to Walt Disney World's Greatest Theme Park by R.A. Peterson. Some articles, A Theme Park Tourist, Horizons, Why Disney Demolished Epcot's Best Attraction Ever, AllEars.net, Horizons, It's 16-Year Journey by Mike Scopa, Horizons at Epcot Center, Why It Worked by Dan Heaton, um, DisneyDocs.net slash Epcot, Intercot Horizons, and Progress City USA, The Horizon Story, and a video, um, Horizons, Martin's Complete Ultimate Tribute, which really, which is, he does a good job of illustrating how some of the effects worked. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I've watched that so many times, that video. Yeah. It's really well done. All of Martin's videos are really well done. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how he did them. He's, <laughs> he's very good. And he has a lot of friends who... Uh, the video footage that he has is a lot of times a lot to get him all the way through there. And then he has a lot of friends that are able to help him secure audio and other assets he needs. And he's able to produce these amazing videos because of it. And mm-hmm. we're, we're the lucky ones in it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. They're invaluable. So. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on the different shows on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network, and then always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And you can email me, Craig at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling Connecting with Walt. Instagram and Michael Bowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 